Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hello, everyone. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I am Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you listening, and I hope you're doing all right wherever you happen to be. Today on the program, my guest is Jinu Chong, author of the debut novel, Flux. I found myself drawn to the way that writers my age sort of make sense of celebrity culture and social media and that kind of thing the way that that's been translated into literary fiction is is fascinating to me i think of the novel no one is talking about this by patricia lockwood which i read right around the time i was i was thinking about this book and it's almost eerie to read literary fiction about the current moment and i wanted to to i wanted to to play in that area Okay, that was Jinu Chong. His debut novel, Flux, is available now from Melville House. It is the official April pick of the book club. Flux is a novel with a lot of style. It is a surreal, time-bending narrative that blends uh, elements of neo-noir with speculative fiction It is about a young man whose reality comes apart when he suspects that his employers at a company called Flux have inadvertently discovered time travel and are covering up a string of violent crimes. 
This is a story that is concerned on a thematic level with trauma, with the cyclical nature of grief, and with the pervasive nature of whiteness within the development of Asian identity in America. I had a great time meeting and talking with Jinu Chong about his debut novel. That conversation is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of Community Board, the new novel by best-selling author Tara Conklin. She was my guest on the most recent episode of this program. We've all seen those ridiculous posts on the Neighborhood app or the Nextdoor app. You know what I'm talking about. People giving away cans of tomato soup, people complaining about each other, people complaining about the government, people complaining about each other's pets. In Tara Conklin's new novel, Community Board, this neighborhood message board is Darcy Clipper's greatest comfort. Darcy is in self-imposed solitude after her husband leaves her for his skydiving instructor, and she relies on her neighbor's posts for connection and company. Community Board is a wise and big-hearted and often funny novel about unplanned isolation and newly forged community, both online and IRL. That's Community Board, the new novel by Tara Conklin, available now from Mariner Books. The Other People podcast is available wherever podcasts are available. Please subscribe to the show. It's free. This is a podcast that makes its entire archive available to listeners without a paywall. By design, nobody likes paywalls. I don't like paywalls. There's not a paywall on this show. So everything is accessible. More than 800 episodes and counting. You can listen to it all. What I am counting on is I'm counting on regular listeners, people who love this show, people who get something from it, people who love literary culture and want to help support it. I am counting on you, if this describes you, to support the show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. Support the show, a dollar a month. I've tried to make it painless. I've tried to make it a no-brainer. One dollar in the hat every month. Three dollars, five, ten, twenty. You get to choose. It's a sliding scale. As you move up the scale, you can get merchandise over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Support the show and help me keep doing this work. If you would like to get another people t-shirt, just go to the show's official website, other PPL dot com scroll down look for the t-shirt if you want to sign up for my free once a week email newsletter you can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com it is essentially an enumerated list i let you know about the latest episodes of the podcast i share links to things that i've been reading and finding interesting or amusing or both so sign up for the newsletter if you so desire if you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind i would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast so apple podcasts stitcher spotify whatever it is give the show a rating write a little review it helps new listeners find the show don't forget to follow the other people show on social media tiktok instagram and twitter the handle on twitter is at other ppl if you have feedback for me the email address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. And finally, if you would like to read my latest novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available right now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook 
so I'll read it to you. It's a work of autofiction. You can explore my psyche. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest, once again, is Jinu Chong. His debut novel, Flux, is available now in the United States and the United Kingdom from Melville House. It is the official April pick of the book club. Jinu Chong is a graduate of Columbia University's MFA program. His short stories and other work have appeared in a variety of publications, including the Southern Review, the Rumpus Lit Hub Chicago Quarterly Review, and Electric Literature. In 2022, he received the Oren Robert Perry Burke Award for fiction from the Southern Review. I am very pleased to have Jinu Chong here on the program as he celebrates this moment, the publication of his fine debut novel. So let's get to it. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jinu Chong, and his new novel, One More Time, is called Flux. I think it's a product of how I was trying to cope with the complexity of, of what I was working with. And as I, you know, started playing with how to put the book together and certain elements like the fictional TV show and the extra characters and the extra timelines kind of started to reveal themselves. I had to write it all down or else it would have made me go insane. And it kind of made me go insane anyway, but uh, <laughs> but still it was more helpful than nothing. And so the outline took about three years to do. Three years. Yeah. I, I wasn't working on it every day, but I did work exclusively on it without writing a word of the draft for multiple years. And it was probably because I was a little nervous about starting it. It became more and more daunting as the outline grew and grew. But also I wanted to make sure it was detailed enough that the writing of it was as not stressful as possible. I get very stressed out by blank pages and having to actually write sentences. And whatever I can do to mitigate that stress, I end up doing. And so I wrote this draft in one window on the side of my computer, and then the other window had my outline open um, at all times. And I was just kind of zooming back and forth between those two. And uh, I think it worked out because the writing of the draft actually took about four months. And it was a lot of, it was just very... It was intense and fast, but it was a lot easier than, than writing the outline was. That, that makes some sense. And I think if you're working in this vein, and, and forgive me if I screw this up, because this is kind of a cross-genre book, right? It's like, I've seen techno-thriller or tech-thriller. Uh, it's, a, it's a queer novel. I mean, there's all different ways that it gets categorized, but it's also a braided narrative multiple plot lines it's speculative that's another category or another adjective that i've seen floating around out there when it comes to this book and you're dealing with technology you're dealing with i mean it, it it's i don't know if i'm getting it wrong in time it feels futuristic in that mm -hmm. sense but i don't think it's that far into the future right it's it's kind of near near future yes 
So I cannot imagine setting out to write a book like this in the absence of the kind of preparation that you described, you know, whether it takes one year or three years, a detailed outline seems logical. Oh yeah. I'm not that good. I, 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 I'm not that good at just coming up with things that I could hold up all of that in my mind and be able to draw on it just mentally. I needed to have everything written out or else, um, it wouldn't have worked and it wouldn't be as, you know, as uh, smooth in any way that it turned out to be. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland, chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. So how does it start? I mean, I'm just curious from a, like a nuts and bolts perspective, you're like, okay, I have, you have some inkling. Did you start with the Brandon character or Bo or Blue, or was it the company? I started with the company. Um, okay, I, which, which is called Flux, which is the title yes, of the book. Yes. The company was a Theranos proxy and the company's founder was an Elizabeth Holmes proxy. And it came directly out of me reading the book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou. And Carreyrou was a journalist who, for the Washington, no, the Wall Street Journal, um, exposed Elizabeth Holmes's fraud for... Which, and for people listening, who, people listening who might, for some, in some, somehow be out of the loop on this, Theranos was this company in Silicon Valley that was, its valuation was like in the billions of dollars yeah. and the whole thing turned out to be a fraud. It was like, you could take like a drop of blood and somehow what, like register a person's entire health situation. Or, exactly. Yeah. So, she and claimed, it turned out to be phony. Yeah. yeah. She claimed that uh, a machine that she and a team invented could do every conceivable blood test from a drop of blood, which is, you know, it's it's hocus pocus. It, it doesn't exist. And everybody thought that everybody believed her, including Walgreens, who wrote her checks for billions of dollars to, to put these machines in their stores, the boards of directors of so many different companies who invested. Um, Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State, was on the board of Theranos, was a, a close friend of the Holmeses and the Holmes family. She, she fooled everybody. And uh, John Carreyrou kind of was the first one to contribute to this spectacular downfall, um, which played out all over the news and is playing out today. Uh, she's still this figure that everybody, you know, when we think of Sam Bankman-Fried and George Santos and other people just like, you know, building upon absolutely nothing to cultivate what seems like just absolute 
an immense power, but it's built on nothing. It's uh, she's still in that conversation, which is, which is I think a, t- a testament to to how memorable that story was, and and the way that it captured people's attention, uh, just like it captured mine. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me when it comes to Elizabeth Holmes. She really is a captivating figure, and for somebody to fool so many people in such privileged positions is extraordinary. And to have that much money on the line and all of it to be smoke and mirrors. And then as a small, like a smaller detail, the fact that she internalized the costuming of the Silicon Valley guru CEO with the black turtleneck every day, very similar to Steve Jobs. You know, he's, I think, sort of like the progenitor of that. Not that he's the first guy ever to wear essentially a uniform every day of his own choosing, but it really does feel like the thing that you do when you are a tech business leader slash guru is like you wear the hoodie every day or the turtleneck or the mock turtle or whatever it is. And she knew all the moves, right? She did. And she was insanely perceptive. And, uh, I think a lot smarter than people gave her credit for because, you know, a normal person couldn't have done that. A normal person couldn't have, you know, gone and gotten all of this money from people as a college dropout, as a 20-year-old, as all of those things that she was that should have counted against her. And none of it mattered because of how persuasive she seemed to be. I mean, there, when I think of, and when, when, I think uh, the, the literature sort of tries to understand what the allure of her was. It had to have been that she uh, sort of captured attention with this kind of magneticness, magnetism about her. It, she's a perfect book character, perfect character for fiction. Right, right. And your character, I believe, it, is it Io? Yeah. How do we pronounce this? Io Emsworth is mm-hmm. the CEO of Flux, this mm-hmm. fictional company startup that you've created and just to add like one last thought with the the whole elizabeth holmes thing the fact that she's a college dropout actually helps i think in terms of her mythology she's too smart for college bill gates bill gates dropped out of harvard right i mean that's this stuff can actually come to serve you if you know how to spin it correctly and then she's an attractive blonde right she's Mm -hmm. got like and she's probably in rooms with a lot of like men raising money. I can oh, see yeah. how she could have used that to her advantage. And you can see how the story could become seductive, you know, to people, uh, not only at the product level, like who wouldn't want to be able to derive all this like health information from a single drop of blood and to end the need for needle injections and all this stuff. But, you know, she just, she knew how to package. <laughs> totally. And once you started with flux and with this sort of proxy for Elizabeth Holmes, how did the rest of the narrative develop in the outline process? It was mostly a product of me being in my MFA program at the time when I was putting together the pieces of this book that came to be after the fact. And, you know, after I decided to write this science fiction scam story, Everything that came after were things that appeared to me in a lot of classes I was taking, a lot of discussions that we were having in workshops. I found myself drawn to the way that 
writers my age sort of make sense of celebrity culture and social media and that kind of thing, the way that that's been translated into literary fiction is is fascinating to me. I think of the novel No One Is Talking About This by Patricia Lockwood, which I read right around the time I was I was thinking about this book. And it's almost eerie to read literary fiction about the current moment. And I wanted to to I wanted to to play in that area with it. What wait, why is it eerie? Because it is like seeing a very slightly warped version of it. And because the only kind of image of present day that we see is from the news and to see it in a much more artistic or very, you know, I mean, the news is biased as well, but in a much more kind of transparently uh, subjective way feels artificial sometimes, but also a little bit like the uncanny Valley. When you look at it, when, when, when we're talking about Facebook or things like that, that are, that are now appearing in fiction, it's strange to see. I read that, uh, after all the work that you did in preparation and then I guess the relatively quick drafting process, the first thing that you did after turning in a draft of this novel was to walk to the milk bar outpost at the Columbus <laughs> Circle Nordstrom and to buy a slice of birthday cake for $11. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So here, here's a question. Did you finish or did you turn in the draft on your birthday or did you just eat birthday cake on the day oh, you I turned just, it in? I just love that birthday cake. That's like one of the best pieces of cake ever devised in my opinion and i get it on all days that are not my i i I typically don't eat cake on my birthday but i get it all other days whenever i'm celebrating something what 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 is this cake is it chocolate what is it (laughs) it's a vanilla cake with sprinkles and i think what is what is alluring about it and what turns people off a lot of people hate milk bar for this reason is that it's very very sweet and uh, the frosting is sweet. The frosting has little pieces of sweetened, like uh, little cake crunches on it. And I love it because I love sweet. But a lot of, especially people in New York, hate on Milk Bar for for how uh, kind of saccharine it can be. <laughs> well, you know, people have a complicated. I feel like people have a complicated relationship with sugar, right? Yeah. It's like. Yeah. But if you're going to go, if you're going to go in, you might as well go all if in. If you're going to go, exactly. I mean, I had just finished that book. I wasn't going to get a uh, a deli slice or something. I had, to, right. <laughs> I had to go for the real thing. I think everybody, when they finish a book and turn in the manuscript, should get themselves a piece of birthday cake. I think that's a nice... You got to mark the moment somehow, I think. I do. I do. And I often say this to writers because these moments come so infrequently. It takes years to write a book that you have to actually plan and make an effort to celebrate and to mark the occasion because otherwise, why are you doing it? You know what I'm saying? Like you have to, to enjoy your triumph, your little moments of triumph. I was talking about this yesterday at a book talk. And the last question, the last question in a lot of these events seems to be if I have any advice for writers. And the one that I went with yesterday was to, for anybody, you know, if, if you haven't published or anything, if you haven't even finished a story, you still have achievements about you. And you have to remember those because as soon as you get to the next rung in this in this 
business of publishing, all of your past kind of tends to disappear for you. And you can't let that happen. I let it happen all the time. And it's poison on me because I am just looking to the next thing and, and uh, the things that I've already done and been able to do and have been so lucky to be able to do kind of shrink in value for me as I move further. And we can't do that. We can't do it or else you'll never be happy. Well, and listen, the, just to get a book published puts you in rare, you know, rare air. I think, I don't know what the percentages are, but I think it's a single digit percentage of people trying to do this actually find their way all the way through the gauntlet. So that's something I often will tell myself and tell other people, like regardless of how the book does in the marketplace, I mean, it's obviously very tough to sell books, but just to get it out there is a huge achievement. So kudos. Thank <laughs> Congratulations. you. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I want to read back to you something that I read in a review of the novel that I think would provide us with a good launching point for a discussion of it. Uh, this was written by Emma Staffaroni in The Rumpus. I hope I have that name correct. Mm-hmm. And she says, quote, with this story, Jinu Chong reframes the question at the heart of social movements like Me Too. Not, am I allowed to like this? But rather, what does my loyalty to this work of art prevent me from seeing? And what she's referring to in the novel, which is one of its plot lines, is Brandon, the protagonist's relationship with a show, a television show called Raider. Can you first, just for listeners, describe like that relationship, that show, and, and Brandon's affection for it? Absolutely. Raider is a very sort of Miami Vice-esque detective show that, in the mythos of the book, aired for uh, half a second in the 80s and was promptly canceled for its kind of dark and violent nature that, that, that set it apart from a lot of other police, police procedurals at the time. And um, it is notable in that it featured quite a few Asian American cast members. And Brandon, who is half Asian, he's biracial, finds himself as a young boy and then further on into his adulthood obsessed with the show and with the character and finds himself talking to Raider, the fiction in his head all the time and setting up this sort of one-sided conversation with him in which he's definitely his most honest. He's telling Raider a lot of things that he is unable to tell others in ways that are succinct or that ways in, in ways that in which he's actually understood. Raider is everything to him. And I modeled that, I think, after something that a lot of us seem to have in our lives. Certainly I do. Not to the, not to the parasocial, unhealthy extent that, that Brandon entertains it. But I think all of us have somebody that we talk to in our minds. And it could be a parent or a friend or even a fictional character like it is for Brandon. But the important thing is that this figure in our minds is an idealized, almost deified 
thing that is that can often be very different from its real life counterpart. And the conflict in Brandon is that the raider in his head uh, proves to be quite different from the raider that everybody else sees when they watch the show. And then also the raider that people see reflected in the actor who portrayed him, which is a big part of the book kind of parsing through the difference between the actor and the character and then Brandon's perception of that character as well. So, and the actor is named uh, Hadrian Hobert. Is that correct? Or no, Antonin, Antonin Hobert. Yes. Yeah. Antonin Hobert is the actor and then his son is, is, is Hadrian. But Antonin, who played Raider, is accused of multiple sexual assault, right? He's, he's kind of uh, me too'd. And so the whole thing falls apart for him professionally. And yet Brandon remains in this deep relationship with this fictional character that he portrayed on screen. And I think that this plot line of the book speaks to something that everyone at this stage of our cultural history deals with, where somebody whose work we might really love turns out to be a comp, you know, compromised or to have done things in their personal life, which are unsavory or worse. And how to navigate that, this issue of separating art from artist, And, um, when is it like, I, I, I don't know. I think we all wrestle with this. Like, can you turn on, like, I have trouble watching Woody Allen movies. I got to, you know, I used to, I used to like some of them. Now I turn like, if I see one on TV, it's like, uh, I feel weird watching it. And yet I can watch a streetcar named desire or the Godfather. And I know that Marlon Brando did a lot of shitty things in his time. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm not holding myself to one standard is the point. (laughs) And you know, I don't, I think it's impossible to do like half the books and records that I love. If you really started to take out the measuring stick and you know, try to measure everyone against some sort of moral standard would probably have to be, you know, trashed, right? Exactly. And the subjectivity of it is what I, I find really intriguing, but also very concerning because you're totally right. And, and, and what Emma is talking about in that review, which I loved that review, is for what it seemed to sp- say to me was that it depends on your own personal preference or history or, or what you thought of of the art. And that comes into play all the time because I I see it happen as well. I have the same problem as you do. I, I kind of, I find it hard to listen to Michael Jackson now because I used to like a lot of his music and the nature of his discretions and, and, and behavior is hard to ignore, but I wasn't so into the Cosby show, for example. And so it's easy for me to just see a random rerun and not feel all that affected by it. But I do know that people who might've watched it every night with their parents before bed, who watched it in the week on the weekends come to and came to see his character on that show as, as a member of their family, I can imagine how difficult it must be to even hear his name 
or to see something in real life that reminds them of a moment on the show or something like that. And it's turned up to a thousand with Brandon because this show is the, it's the script of his life. It's, it's, it's this, it's intertwined with every moment of his DNA and for it to crumble away like that. I, it's the, it's the most traumatic thing that can happen to him. Is there like if is there anything that you would point to in popular culture? Like I think in an interview you mentioned the movie Call Me by Your Name and how it's tied to now what the behavior of Army Hammer makes it difficult to watch. You just mentioned Michael Jackson, but is there a pop culture figure who performed any kind of similar function for you as you were growing up or currently that you oh, have it some was, sort of I think Call Me by Your Name is a, a really great example because it is an important piece of culture to me. I remember seeing it when I was 22. It was 2017. And I felt such immense relief watching it and thinking uh, I was I was not out at the time. And I remember watching it and thinking for the first time in my life, I have to come out. I can't live like this anymore. And the movie, especially, um, is very dear in my heart for that reason. And I saw it 15 times that year. I, I kept coming back to it because of how, how sort of brave it made me feel and how, how liberated it made me feel. And the, the downfall of Army Hammer was intensely painful for that reason, because I can't look at his face anymore without thinking of it. And this this thing, and this idealized version of the movie that is in my mind is poisoned because of it. And uh, I've lost this thing that gave me such guidance and, and was the catalyst for such joy that followed in my life after coming out, after telling my parents, after getting into a relationship for the first time, all of that is now deadened by what's happened to him and not what's happened to him, what, what he did. And uh, yeah, that's it for me. It's different for everybody. Yeah. I think it's interesting too. Like you're just reflecting on my own personal experiences with this, but I imagine it's not uncommon is that you will be alone sometimes, you know, with the remote control or whatever it is, watching uh, TV or flipping through Netflix and there's like these dimensions to the shame and the disconnect that you feel around a particular figure. So like, what I mean is you turn on, call me by your name or whatever, you see it and you will have, if you're me, some kind of argument with yourself where you're imagining other people observing you as you make a decision about whether or not to watch it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's that's like, exactly right. That's what it is. I guess that's, that means that maybe that just, ex, that's just a, an illustration of how like a sense of personal morality works, but it feels especially the case in the age of social media or something, the way that there's so much feedback on these issues. There's so much dialogue about it that it can't help but find its way into your sort of personal interactions with individual figures and pieces of culture. 
Absolutely. It's tough for that reason. And I, I'm on social media for mainly publicity reasons. But I, I have to say, being on literary Twitter and publishing Twitter while putting a book out is uh, insane. And <laughs> um, I don't, I, it, I think, I think marginally helped me uh, in my career, but the, the toll it took on my mental health sometimes, I don't know if it was worth it. And that, that pervades in all of life. I, I mean, um, not uh, Twitter for me is very literary and publishing centric and that's all I follow, but on Facebook and Instagram, it's like a whole different thing because it encompasses all of life for me and is, you know, all of the pitfalls of comparisons to other people and the, 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 the pressures of being perceived in that way. I, it's doing, I, I'm, it's turned me off social media for sure. I, I've, I've had so many similar like ups and downs with it myself. And I think what is getting to me lately is especially when it comes to Instagram, because it's so visual in nature is to realize like how many people I know like are really good and really love to like perform themselves online. And there's nothing inherently wrong with it. I think part of my discomfort has to do with the fact that I don't feel like I'm very good at it. Like I can do this, like I can talk to somebody, especially when it's my guest who is centered, you know what I'm saying? But like <laughs> to just have it be like the me show, you know what I'm saying? Like I cannot do that. I cannot do it. Uh, it's very uncomfortable. I, I used to kind of do it in the monologue to this show more mm-hmm. often. And that was my least favorite part. Cause I was like, Oh God, what am I going to say? You know, I'm just sort of, sort of sick of myself, but that is not a problem for a lot of people. And I think maybe some of it might be generational though, not always. And I feel like the other big component of my discomfort might have to do with the creeping feeling that like to be able to perform yourself online is essential. (laughs) You know, the pressure that it exerts, like you've got to be able to like, you know, turn your phone camera on and just entertain people all the time and kind of curate a version of yourself that the audience will love. And it's like, Oi, you know, the barrier is getting thinner because you used to be able to just post on Facebook. I'm going to the movies and then that's it. And then you had to post pictures. So you had to show, you know, your actual life, you had your actual face. You could edit it in some way. You could filter it. And now it's, progress beyond that it's tiktok and people look down on you for the filters and the the kind of thing the the, this whole gen z attitude of no filter no nothing just putting the camera on your face and and capturing at your most vulnerable vulnerable i can't imagine doing it honestly there there's like a cutoff for the age (laughs) Well, but what you're talking about here, and this is where I start to get creeped out, is what you're talking about is authenticity, which I'm in support of. Like, great. I mean, the more authentic that human beings can be with one another, the better. You know, I'm, uh, I don't see any downside to people being authentic. I guess unless their authentic selves is really shitty, <laughs> that might be a problem. <laughs> but the, the, the place that I get creeped out is when I start to think about people getting really good at performing authenticity 
in a manner that is like indiscernible from inauthenticity, you yeah. know, like it's like what, how authentic could any performance of self be like, unless someone was filming you and you didn't know it, I, there's always an, a level of artifice to it and I can't get past it, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like it's, th- th- these issues are tied very much to the thematic concerns of flux. Like you think about like an Elizabeth Holmes figure or the uh, Emsworth figure in your book, the CEO, and that is an entire performance of self, like a very sustained, like brilliant, like performance that might exceed like the most brilliant film performance ever given. I cannot imagine like the, the, the nerves of steel required and maybe the sociopathology <laughs> required <laughs> to do that. Right. Yeah. I, I'm glad that it, it comes off that way because I had a lot of fear over portraying IO and her sort of underman, Lev, who, from Brandon's point of view, run Flux and are his superiors. I had a lot of fear over portraying the way that they exist and talk because I needed for them to exude a lot of confidence and presence about them so that you pay attention to them. But I also wanted to very plainly show how full of BS they were at all times. And trying to figure that out was a tough thing. And showing how it sort of manifests in the way that they talk as if they are hearing only themselves and then waiting for someone else to speak and and then to take another opportunity to hear themselves again as they respond. And there's just zero connect over who they're actually talking to. That was a lot of, it was, it was tough to do, but it was also a lot of fun to do. I think a lot of humor lies in the way that um, Io and Lev speak to one another and then also to people who don't really fit in their world. I thought so. I mean, Lev in particular is a very funny character to me. (laughs) Like that was a lot of fun to read. And I feel like the relationships, like the hierarchical relationships that exist inside corporate America and maybe in particular inside these really sexy startups where the gold rush fever is so intense, right? Like that's part of the allure is that we're going to, we're going to quote unquote change the world. I feel like anytime that's, that phrase is used in the context of a startup, it is code for, we're going to make a fuck ton of money, (laughs) (laughs) right? I mean, I don't think that changing the world is necessarily the primary motive you know but it's a it's a nicer way to put it exactly and i think that just the way that people can get really caught up in that energy and kind of the culty vibes that can develop how insular these companies can become because people are working so hard and it it does require a kind of deep belief right almost like a religious fervor you have to really believe in the mission and then the company to get yourself to do what it takes oftentimes to to get through the weeks right yep or you need to want money enough or you need to you need to be so desperate for that lifestyle so that your morals sort of fall away i i went to i went to college with at georgetown in dc which you know is a feeder in many ways to consulting and investment banking and finance and 
almost half of the people that I knew went into some of the, those fields. And they were people that I never imagined working in that kind of environment. But once you see it and you and you hear their stories, oh, my boss took us to his Hamptons estate and flew us all in helicopters and we had all, all of that <laughs> stuff. It's, it, it's easy to see if you're surrounded 24-7 by people who are desperate to achieve that, I can see how it how it could affect you and how it could change what you want. I, I see that happening. Yeah, but I don't know how... I don't know how it wouldn't, especially the intensity that those jobs uh, require of you, you know, day in and day out. I've heard stories, you know, you read about the long hours and the sleeping in the office and the kind of frat boy culture, you know, the, the internal pressures and the social confirmation of all of it. If everybody's going along with it, it's like anything, any human group, right? If everybody's going along with it and striving for it, it's easy to get caught up in that. And I've had work experiences in office work experiences where it starts to the, the internal pressure of it start started to get to me. The office politics, the just the stress of trying to get a project off the ground, the heat that you would feel from executives who were under pressure from investors, like all of that stuff, you know, like it's really hard to work in an environment like that and maintain a sense of your best self or your deepest self. That's just my experience. And maybe it's because I'm writerly and creative. It's just not cut out for that. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You know, with that in mind, reading this book did make me wonder about your work life and if you've had. I mean, you talked about your college friends who went off to work in finance, but have you had day job experiences in the past that might have informed this book? Most directly, the first chapter of Flux occurs when it, it plays out as Brandon is laid off from his company and finds his whole team cut due to things that have nothing to do with him. And uh, that happened to me. That was my first job out of college. I went to work for Time Inc., which was the spinoff of Time Warner that managed all of its magazine, legacy print magazine titles, including People, um, Entertainment Weekly, Sports Illustrated, Time itself, all of those things. It was, it was a giant for a century and was in its last gasps as I sort of joined. Um, about six months after I started this job, it was bought by Meredith, which is another kind of conglomerate media corporation. All of us were laid off. And uh, 
that experience kind of directly plays out in chapter one, which that's the France is the, the isn't the, the, that's the company right. called France? That's the yeah. Meredith stand in. That's right. And uh, <laughs> I let me clarify that that Brandon is sleeping with his boss in the beginning of this book. I was doing not that. I I would just confirm I was not sleeping with my boss <laughs> at the time. But I did go down and buy an expensive sort of little wallet with my severance check that didn't. So wait, wait, wait. Let's discuss this wallet. Is it a a fanny pack? What do we call it again in the book? A belt bag. A belt bag. So did you get a belt bag? Is that what it was? It was, uh, I switched, I took some artistic license there. It was a real just leather wallet that I bought. It was, uh, Time Inc. used to be headquartered in Brookfield Place which used to be now the headquarters of um, HBC, which owned Saks. And there was a Saks store down there. I went in there and I bought a wallet and I thought it would make me happy. But um, it, I, I felt happy as I was bringing it up to pay for it. And then as soon as I did, it was crushing again and back to uh, depression as it was. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, there's something poignant about buying a wallet on the day you get laid off with like your severance payment. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. So I want to talk to you a bit more about Brandon and issues related to identity, because in this character in particular, you've got yourself someone who exists in like multiple liminal spaces. Uh, half Asian, half white, uh, has, uh, you know, queer relationships, but also straight relationships is in between jobs. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, and then I also, I think I read that you were inspired by the sympathizer, the Vietnam win book, uh, that won the Pulitzer. And also I think as an extension of that by the invisible man, the Ralph Ellison novel, Yes. So you're working in a tradition here. Absolutely. The the character or the two characters that narrate Invisible Man and the Sympathizer share a lot of qualities to them that that stuck out to me and and were things I wanted to try and emulate. Um Vietan Wen has spoken a lot about how the narrator of the Sympathizer is supposed to be this call out to Ellison's character. Both of them have no names. They are basically only identifiable by their race. Uh, and as a result of that, exist in this weird vacuum that allows them to enter any kind of community, cross any barrier, anything, and constantly exist in this liminal space that you say. Um, I love that about have I, I wanted to write a main character that was able to do that because it felt so rich narratively. Um, and that, that was the guiding thing for me when I was writing Brandon. I wanted to put him basically in the middle of everything, but also to give him a sense of, I guess, listlessness or directionlessness about him. I, I, I think he differs from 
the characters I was pulling from because he even he doesn't really know what to make of himself. Um, he lacks any sort of certainty about what he is or what he wants, which made him an interesting sort of observer of the world around him. And let me kind of go as wild as I wanted with the characters and the situations that he found himself in, um, because he was always there to bring everything down to the ground uh, because of his sort of affectlessness. Mm. It's also, I think, I mean, he might be a more extreme example of what we're talking about, but I think a lot of people in particular, well, I mean, or uh, as one example of people feeling this kind of identitylessness or <laughs> this in-betweenness, <laughs> I don't even know what the word is, but I, I know that uh, like having read up a little bit that your parents immigrated from South Korea, correct? That's right. Yep. And so, and I've had conversations through the years with writers who are, you know, first or first generation in particular, who don't really feel that sense of belonging in their native country and also, or in, you know, the country of their ancestry, but also don't feel a sense of belonging in uh, the United States and their adopted home. And so I feel like that's an interesting space to be in. Uh, and I feel like Brandon is obviously a reflection of that, but maybe with the dial turned up. Absolutely. And the, I, I really like that you say the dial turned up because it's, I, I think I could have made him have two Asian parents and for him to be a lot more sort of Asian American that uh, in the way that I am. Um, but the interesting thing about making him biracial is I, I found that if it was physical, if his ambiguity was physical on his face so that when people look at him, they can't tell what he is. And white people sort of don't totally understand if he speaks English. And then Asian people don't totally understand if he speaks Korean. It made it just that much more visual for me. And is probably the prime difference between us. Uh, because if you look at my face and the, the volume was off and I wasn't speaking, I'm pretty indistinguishable from my dad or someone who lived their whole life in Korea. But if you put Brandon here, you would see it immediately. And that made him very efficient plot-wise when, when he, people came across him and it was easy to kind of make these first impressions of him as the book went along. It was an interesting th thing to do. I'm glad I did it. Well, I want to ask you a little bit more about like your upbringing. Like, you wind up at Georgetown and then on to Columbia for your master's. You said your dad lived his whole life in Korea, but uh, immigrated here, correct? Yes. He moved here when he was 17. Not really by choice. His, his father passed away a couple of years before that, and they were struggling very uh, financially. And so moving to America was a bit of a necessity for him and his family. My mother came here when she was five. And so she's imbued with American culture in a way that is a lot more, it is a lot deeper than, than it is with my dad. And it makes them two very different kinds of Asian American. 
um, as I grew up, I started to take on a lot more of my mother. I used to be quite fluent in Korean when I was a little kid, and now not so much. And uh, it's, it's pretty similar to the journey that Brandon takes in this book after he experiences, you know, uh, this sort of identity-defying loss that frames the book and then kind of sees himself shrinking away from his Asian heritage as a result. I, that definitely happened to me uh, and will continue to happen if I have children and this Asian part of my identity continues to be diluted as I stay in America. So I read that The Kite Runner was a formative reading experience for you as a kid. Uh, can you talk about why? It was the first book for adults that I read is not, I listened to the audiobook, and um, it was something that my parents put on while we were in the car going on trips and things like that. It was the first piece of literature that I think I really encountered in my life. And when I think of, when I think of what I like so much about literary fiction and what sort of turns of plot are most interesting to me or what kind of character aspects speak to me most profoundly. I think of that book because it was the first one. And I, I, um, I, I, I recall it was the first time as well that a book made me sad in a way that was more profound than anything I've ever I've ever experienced from any kind of entertainment, from books, from shows, from TV, or anything like that. It made me, I think it tapped into my emotional state in the most personal way for the first time. And I think that's why I hold it so dear in my heart because of what it achieved in me as I experienced it. And it's, I think that's the prime goal of, of writers or of most writers is to, is to affect people in that way and make them feel as if they are in the story themselves. That's how I felt when I, when I listened to it the first time. How old were you? I think I was maybe eight or nine. Oh, wow. Okay. That's young. I think that's young for that book, right? It's, uh, yeah. I, I don't know if it was the right decision to, sh to show me that, <laughs> to, to expose me to that book at the age that I was, but it stayed with me for forever. So did you study writing as an undergraduate? Like, do, have you been on this track for a while or is it something that you came to after like later in, into adulthood? Um, writing was always a hobby that I didn't think would ever emerge from just me doing it by myself in isolation. It, I, I was still an English major. I was still writing a little bit of creative stuff, but and and showing it to in class or to uh, to classmates and things like that. But for the most part, it was a very personal kind of private thing that I always knew that I was the best at. I was. It was the only thing that I could do really, really well, in my opinion. But a lot of things just held me back from from wanting to pursue it as a career. It all changed a couple of years ago with Columbia when I got into 
the Columbia MFA. Um, it was the only one I applied to that year. I was a year into my next job after uh, leaving Time Inc. And I was thinking to myself, if I got into this workshop, I would try writing. And if I didn't, I would just, it would be a hobby forever. And maybe I would even stop writing uh, because I wasn't loving it as much anymore. And then I got into that program and it all changed. For the first time, I was exposed to a community of writers, you know, that that not only challenged me, but inspired me to do things in a way that it's never happened before. So getting into Columbia is the reason why uh, this book exists and why I am a writer today. Otherwise, Flux would be a Google Doc still on my computer that nobody would have seen. That's a happy MFA take. I don't always, <laughs> I don't always get a happy MFA take on this show. So oh, yeah, it's nice yeah. to hear. Because I think like, what, like all you're talking about really, or mostly what you're talking about is community. I mean, you were working in isolation as we do. I had a similar kind of experience where I don't know if at the level of instruction, it's as important of an experience as it is at simply just being in a room with other people who do this, having that kind of reciprocal exchange where you're looking at each other's work and giving feedback and maybe just like taking comfort in each other's simple company, <laughs> like not feeling like the only one or somebody who's just kind of like, you know, out on an Island by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. The, the relief of telling people I'm writing a book, and for them to say, oh, is it, what's it about? Is it about, is it like Harry Potter? Is it about, is it like, you know, name the most popular book in the world, that kind of thing, which is the discussion you get from anybody who is not a writer and who is not a part of the publishing world. To go from that to then to enter this community and say, I'm writing a novel and it's gonna be kind of a neo-noir, it's gonna be a sci-fi thriller and it's going to be a little bit literary. And for them to understand that totally and to even have read the books that you were reading and wanted this book to be in conversation with, it it's the most comforting thing in the world. So I cannot part company with you without asking you about you being a 20-year-old publishing intern at Simon & Schuster <laughs> and having an exchange with the uh, now CEO, Jonathan Karp. Can we just yes. can we just share this story with people? Yes, it's yes. Very funny. <laughs> I will. I'll lay out the story. It is even though it is painful for me, I'll do it. Okay. For, for, for thank you show. for your sacrifice. <laughs> uh, I was twenty years old. I was a publishing intern at Simon and Schuster. It was my first real internship in the business. I was. It was paid. I got to work in New York. I got to come into that office in Rockefeller Center every day. I was living. The dream. Uh, back then, I thought I would be a book editor at some point, and now, absolutely not. But at that point, I was thinking of it. There was an intern mixer. The HR teams of every other publisher were there, were there kind of looking for new talent. It was all the interns of all the different houses kind of collected there. And Jonathan Karp was walking around talking to a select you know, number of the interns. 
And I found myself in a little bit of a talk circle with him and the other Simon & Schuster interns. And he said, uh, before we, you know, I have have something to ask you, which is, I want to know which which book you've read recently that has shaken your core. Like, I want to know the most influential book in your life right now. And I knew who he was. I was utterly terrified. I had no, (laughs) instantly, I forgot every book I've ever read. And of course, the very few that I was thinking of, oh, do I say the kite runner? Like, absolutely not. Everyone, that's such a basic choice. Everyone, blah, blah, blah. He's going to think I'm an idiot for that. And so I thought of uh, the newly released, at the time, memoir by Anna Kendrick, which was called Scrappy Little Nobody. And it was, <laughs> it was published by Simon & Schuster. I was working... I was working on some marketing thing for the team at the time. And I said that. I said, Scrappy Little Nobody by Anna Kendrick. I thought it was really amazing. And at that point, I hadn't even read it. Um, (laughs) And then he kind of just looked at me and said, okay. And then he went on and then found an excuse to leave afterwards. Some people didn't. You know, I got to go. I got to give my response. Some people did not even get to go. And he just left. Your lost. response, your your response was like so deflating that he didn't even take the time to hear anybody else. <laughs> I would guess so. I think he said like, "What the hell? Who who did we hire as these interns?" And found a way to escape that situation. And by the way, nothing again. Anna Kendrick is delightful, <laughs> right? Like totally she like, is. smart, funny. Oh, yes. Like you know, she's a wit. The whole thing. But like, mm-hmm. I think somebody like Jonathan Carp is probably hoping to hear about maybe like a more highbrow literary oh, yes. experience. If only I'd said like, if only I'd said cutting for stone or something, and I would have sounded so amazing. And uh, I just couldn't think of it at the time. I was 20 years old. <laughs> well, Jonathan, if you're listening, and I suspect that you are yeah. out there, you now know that Ginu hadn't even read it yet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is maybe the best part of the whole story. <laughs> Uh, I always ask people before I let them go if they are working on anything new. And it's fine if you're not, but I'm wondering if you've got another book in the works or at least another outline in the works. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another book, I'm very happy to say. And it's a product of having had so much time while Flux was on submission and needing a way out of the the crushing despair of all of the rejections that we got on this book that I tried to write something new. And the, uh, the environment in which I was working on it lent itself to something so much more joyous than I think I would have written otherwise, because I was writing it to, to try and be happy and to try and be thankful uh, when, you know, every other week I was getting these five editors passed, these two editors passed, all of that. I was trying to be happy writing again. And uh, as a result, this book is a lot happier and funnier than, than Flux is. And I'm very thankful for that. And so who knows what will become of it, but it made me very happy to write and is still something that, that makes me smile when I read it back. And so, so it's a novel. It's a novel. And it is a, like in the same vein, like are you dealing with any of the same kinds of themes or is it uh, 
technology related or it's very different it's very realist there's no sort of speculative element it's also very a lot more autobiographical than flux turned out to be and i know that a lot of you know emerging writers write a book and mine from their lives and create this thing usually for their debut which is very much a facsimile of their own experiences flux was not that for me but this book number two definitely is. Okay. And do we have a name for it or is it unnamed at this point? As of yet, unnamed. Yeah. Okay. Did you write, I mean, last question, did you write a 50-page outline for it? The outline, it was about a quarter of the size. It was a lot simpler. And I was, I, I was really happy because it only took me, you know, six or so months to outline it. As opposed to four years, which which in my book is a major improvement. So wait, and did the but then did the drafting process also move as quickly as it did with Flux because you had the outline to work from? It did. Oh yeah, I think this process is one I will stick with uh, because it it usually results in a lot of work that is that I'm able to do without stressing myself out too much. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that like a sane writer <laughs> would do. <laughs> I, should take, I should take some advice. I should uh, take, a, take some advice from you and do this. Like, I, It's the kind of thing I think a lot of writers think about but don't often do. They just dive in and have to find their way, you yeah. know, which is one way of doing it, but it probably is more stressful and might be more time consuming. Yeah. Yep. So congratulations to you. Thank you on taking such a sane approach and congratulations on the debut and on the reception that it's gotten very happy to be spotlighting it in the book club and really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me thank you so much that means the world okay everybody there we have it that was my conversation with jinu chong author of the debut novel flux available now from melville house in the united states and the uk flux is the official april pick of the book club, the Nervous Breakdown book club, the Other People book club, whatever you want to call it. I have a book club. I have had a book club for more than a decade. You can sign up for the book club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Just click on book club in the menu bar. It's pretty straightforward. You receive a new book at your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this podcast, so it makes for a very enriching and holistic literary experience. If you would like to find Jinu Chong on the internet, his website is jinuchong.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Jinu Chong. One more time, the novel is called Flux, available now from Melville House. Go get your copy wherever books are sold. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this show. It's a free show. There's no paywall. So if you had a good time, if you would like to support the work that I do, I would appreciate it if you would head over to patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. Support this program for as little as $1 a month. If you would like to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you would like to sign up for my free once a week email newsletter, you can do that at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this program wherever you listen to this program. It helps new listeners find this program. 
You can watch the Other People podcast on the Other People YouTube channel. Did you know that? You can watch my conversation with Jinu Chong. Just head over to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. And when you find the Other People YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. The Other People podcast is on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have feedback, if you have thoughts, you can email the program. The address is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, if you would like to read my latest offering, my latest novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. It is an inward book. It is uh, kind of a meditation. It's a little bit griefy. It's hopefully funny at times. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Coming up next on The Other People Show, I will be in conversation with J. Ryan Straddle, author of a new novel called Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. I've known J. Ryan a long time. He's guested on this program before. We had a great talk. I'm excited to share that one with you in a few days. So stay tuned. <laughs>